Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. Well, hey, everybody. I am both captivated and frustrated by this painting by Vincent van Gogh. This painting is called The Church at Auvers, and it's missing something. Can, can anyone see what it's missing? Well, the church has no doors. And I think Van Gogh is expressing a common frustration of his experience with the church, that, that it's closed to outsiders. The idea of church is beautiful, and it's certainly depicted beautifully here, but for him and, and many others, there's no way to get in. See, this view is shared, I think, by many Americans who still generally have a high view of God and a high view of Jesus, but a very low view of, of church. And I wonder, how did we get here? Well, we're going to look at a text today in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus redefines who's in and who's out, and, and that's today's big idea. We're in chapter 2 of Mark. It's our second series in this journey through uh, the Gospel of Mark, which we've titled A Movement of Misfits, because we're seeing early on in the Gospel the kinds of people that Jesus is surrounding himself with. Now, as we approach uh, verse 13, let me just place us in the story so that we have our bearings. Mark is in the middle of presenting what are known as five conflict narratives. And so in the midst of building his team, Jesus is also having run-ins with religious leaders from the beginning of chapter 2 until chapter 3, verse 6. And these five conflicts include the healing of the paralytic man, uh, which we looked at last week. And then today we'll see eating with tax collectors and sinners, and then the question of fasting. Uh, and in a couple of the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at plucking grain on the Sabbath and then healing the man with the withered hand. These five narratives are carefully constructed by Mark as a single literary unit with a very clear purpose. See, the opposition that Jesus is facing isn't just to show us what he's up against. Instead, Mark is using these encounters as an opportunity to show us who Jesus really is. And so while he's gaining popularity with all the people, at the same time, the authorities are rejecting him. And this rejection is gonna eventually build to a crucifixion. And so these conflict narratives follow a, a, a basic common pattern. The, the first thing is that Jesus acts. He does or says something. And then the authorities disapprove of those actions. And, and really the underlying source of their objections has to do with Jesus not following their laws. It's not that Jesus is not following the actual Torah, but, but there was a second layer of laws, the oral Torah, that, that comprised the man-made rules concocted over the years by the religious leaders. Jesus, by the way, felt free to disregard these man-made laws when it got in the way of his ministry. The third part of this pattern is then that Jesus self-discloses an aspect of his identity, which helps his original followers and us, honestly, to better understand who he is. And let me just pause here and, and underline this. Knowing who Jesus is, is the most important thing you can do. It's true for them and it's true for us. There are things that cloud the true identity of Jesus. So, you know, our personal baggage, our personal history, some past hurt from our church growing up, some news story that we saw about how bad evangelicals are, maybe our own struggles, maybe the resulting ideas about God that emerge from those struggles. But today's passage couldn't be more important because for some of you, it's gonna provide you a bridge to see who Jesus really is. 
And so our two conflict narratives today involve Jesus eating with sinners and then the questions about fasting. And these two passages, while they are very different, are also connected for a very important reason. To find out how they're connected, I want to start at the end of the section in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2 and then work backwards because these two verses, 21 and 22, actually explain the central point of all five of the conflict narratives. They give us the interpretive lens for for the next couple of weeks of passages. And so Mark is showing us that Jesus is a new kind of leader and he's introducing a new kind of kingdom. So I want you to look right now at at Mark chapter two, starting in verse 21. He says, no one sews a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old. And the worst tear is made. And so no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so, so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so here we see two parables, two little mini parables, two metaphors really, both of which are communicating the exact same message. New cloth on an old garment, shrinks when it's washed, and it pulls and stretches and ultimately tears that old cloth onto which it had been sewn. Similarly, new wine expands through fermentation, and it's going to break a brittle old skin and ruin it if it's put inside of it. And the message of both of these mini parables is that this new kingdom age that Jesus is introducing, it demands a new approach. The old ways are now unsuitable and unable to contain that which Jesus is about to do. In other words, for Jesus to try to force his own teachings and his own ethical principles into Judaism, for him to try to, to shoehorn it in to, to the already existing, would be forcing the Jesus way into categories that were not meant to contain it. So Jesus' new ministry is the new patch and the new wine. He's not an attachment. He's not an appendage. He's not an add-on to the status quo. He did not come to be merely integrated into the way things used to be. And so the question is, will they forsake their religious business as usual to join this new way of life that that Jesus is giving us? He's essentially saying, if you're going to follow the old ways of of rule-keeping religion, You're going to miss me, and many of them eventually would. I wonder how many of you are also missing Jesus because he refuses to be an add-on to your existing way of doing things. You maybe think, well, I'm just going to sprinkle a little Jesus on the side of the way that I already handle relationships or the way I already handle my money or the way I already raise my kids. I'm going to do it my way, essentially, but I'll throw a little Jesus in on the side to kind of spiritual it up a little bit. Or maybe I'm going to make my grandma happy or whatever, whatever your motivation is. Listen, Jesus isn't a side dish. He's the main meal. And if you do it the way you've always done it and then just try to add him in, you're going to miss him. And so with this interpretive lens on the frame of our glasses, let's go back now and read these two conflict narratives starting in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, I, I want to pause here and take a quick note of the geography. Last week, we saw that the, the verses right before uh, this, Jesus was in Capernaum. And now he's beside the sea, and he's heading back to Capernaum for the rest of, of the chapter. So we have to ask why. Why is Mark pointing out these kind of details? 
Well, one of them, I think they lend to the credence to the fact that, the, that these things really happened in time and space. These are not fairy tales. But also, this fits a recurring pattern in Mark's gospel. See, after Jesus demonstrates saving power, as he did just before this passage in the healing of the paralytic, he, he almost always retreats to a lonely region, either the wilderness or the mountains or the sea. And I believe that Jesus is modeling here for us what a relationship with God actually look like, looks like. It involves both powerful activity and quiet intimacy. It involves hard work and active retreat. We'll look more at the importance of Sabbath rest next week. Now look at verse 14. It says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, also called Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, here's what I want you to see today. It's Jesus' radical redefinition of who's in and who's out. And here's the first aspect of that. Jesus includes those you'd least expect. And so Jesus is walking along here, and he sees Levi, also known as Matthew, and he's a tax collector. And I want to remind you here of the damnable position of tax collectors in that society. Any society, really, but that one in particular. They were despised. They were considered thieves, mainly because they were known for skimming. Remember, Israel was being occupied by the invading Romans. And so a Jew who accepted the job of a tax collector working for the Romans was considered a traitor. They were taking from their fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. They were skimming some for themselves, and then they were giving the rest to their sworn enemies. Tax collectors were hated. They were excommunicated from the synagogue immediately. They were shamed by their family and friends. They, they would render a home unclean just by walking in the door. They were disqualified from holding any public office. They couldn't be a witness in a court proceeding. They, they were listed in the history books alongside murderers. So the fact that Jesus approaches Levi and says, follow me, it's scandalous. And at the same time, it gives hope for all of us, doesn't it? For all of you who have ever thought Jesus could never use me, like this account is for you. And did you notice there in verse 14 the, the, the brevity of Jesus' call and Matthew's instant and radical obedience? It just says, follow me, and he rose and followed him. It's similar to the call of the fisherman in the last chapter, but here the one being called is a complete social outcast. Matthew was a roadside tax collector. And so imagine, you know, the, the toll booths on the turnpike, only no cars and dusty roads instead. And Matthew left that toll booth full of money. He stood up immediately and, and left the money sitting there next to the road and, and followed Jesus. The, the things that had mattered so much to him now paled in comparison with following Jesus. You know, in order to follow Jesus, you have to walk away from stuff that you've come to rely on for your security, even for your identity. And I love verse 15 because we're ushered straight into this outcast living room. It says, as he reclined at a table in his house, we're like, whoa, whoa, they, they just met and they're already hanging out at Matthew's house. 
You see, Jesus is wildly relational. Jesus goes where other people wouldn't go. And he welcomes people in that others would reject. And and it leads to the second aspect that I want you to see of this radical redefinition of who's in and who's out. And that's that Jesus models friendship with the outcasts. Jesus pursues Levi. Levi follows Jesus. Levi goes and gets all of the nut jobs, all of the girls with too short of skirts, all of the guys that still smell like pot, all of the sexually confused and broken. And he gets all the very peculiar social misfits and outcasts of the day. I mean, this is like an episode of Celebrity Rehab. Is that still a thing? Anyway, everybody's got a story to tell around these tables. These people definitely aren't going to a church, but they come to Matthew's home. He throws a party for them. And the invitation list included what the Bible says, many tax collectors and sinners. Sinners included people like prostitutes and known thieves. And here's why this is so radical. The Jewish religious culture at the time was dominated by a concept of clean and unclean. Now, I'm not talking about personal hygiene here, but religious purity. For example, if a person touched a leper, that person became unclean. If somebody touched a dead body, you had to quarantine for seven days. Now, those things, you may think, have have medical reasons. But look at who else was in this category. You also couldn't touch a Gentile. You also couldn't touch a prostitute or a tax collector. If you did, you had to go through a ritual ritual ceremonial cleansing. And, And honestly, it became a religious way of defining who's in the God club and who's out. But Jesus was different. Not only did he not avoid these people, he befriended them. He went to their homes. He got close to them. Yes, he even touched them. And here's why. Because when Jesus touched lepers, Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper became clean. When Jesus touched a dead body, instead of him having to get locked up for seven days until he was clean, instead, the dead body came back to life. Jesus' feet were washed by a prostitute, and instead of him becoming impure, she became pure. And so he's reversing and reimagining the whole religious tradition. He's saying the day is over where where everyone else is unclean and only you are clean. There's a new kingdom. And this new wine isn't going to fit into your old wineskins. See, the difference is when you're with me, you don't avoid everyone who you would consider the other. You actually go to them and make them clean. Jesus says, I make people new from the inside out. I'm going to wash away their stains. I'm going to take their filth. And in exchange, I will give them my purity. I will take your darkness and I will replace it with my light. And so you can stop the craziness of trying to pretty up the outside while the inside of you is still a mess. I've replaced your rituals with a new wine. The, The whole system you're running is empty. All the old concepts of clean and unclean are empty. The religious leaders, you see, had bastardized God's law and tried to make it an insiders versus outsiders thing while they go through the motions of tradition. And Jesus says the whole thing's empty. And so he doesn't fear being contaminated by sinners around a dinner table. Instead, he contaminates them with love and hope and the gospel. And listen, he's not condoning their sinful lifestyle, but he is demonstrating that their lifestyle can be transformed. True life change is possible. I've often wondered what the conversation was like around those dinner tables. So, Jesus, you know, who does your taxes? (laughs) I picture Jesus eating with these outcasts, talking with them, laughing with them, listening to their stories about their lives, 
talking with them about their dreams and their experiences and how society hates them and how God must have given up on them long ago. And then he explains to them about how the love of God reaches even them. And he invites them to a transformed life. Matthew probably felt like his heart was going to pound right out of his chest. I'll tell you what Matthew was probably thinking while watching his friends encountering Jesus. He was thinking, you know, all these years I thought making money by the roadside was it. I thought getting rich, I thought that's what I was after. But I was so deluded. This right here, this is it. I have people that I love and I have Jesus that I follow. And if I can bring them together, man, this is as good as it gets. This is the best. You know, for our purposes, the clear teaching of Scripture is that when somebody truly meets Jesus and is truly changed by Jesus, they have to tell others. You will have your greatest impact in your own spheres of influence. It's why we talk about things like pray for aid, being a light in your workplace, reaching your neighborhood. You see, when you follow Jesus, you are called to use the opportunities and the relationship that God gives to bring people in, to feed them, to laugh with them, to enjoy them, to love them, to get into their life, to hear their story, to be honest about your own sins and your faults and your failures and your flaws, and to enjoy their company and let them enjoy yours, and to slowly and graciously, listen, walk them to Jesus. There are a lot of people that, that, that'll feel far more comfortable in your living room than in our church. So invite them to your living room. You know, these days, everyone has an opinion about everyone else. These, you know, the kids these days and their devices or those liberals and their wokeness or those conservatives and their prejudices or those sexual deviants or those greedy capitalists or whatever. So I ask you, well, what are you doing about it? <laughs> you know what Jesus did? He showed up for dinner with them. You know what Matthew did? He threw a party for them in his home. You can't love people that you won't eat dinner with. And like the Pharisees, we have this tendency to size people up, determine if they're worthy of our love, and in turn, worthy of Christ's love. You see, we've taken the, the heart of our faith, things like love and grace and forgiveness, and we've turned them into commodities that need to be earned, things that are doled out only as a reward for proper behavior. But what if we saw it as our job to show grace and then Jesus' job to change hearts. What, what if we released the need to decide whether or not a homeless guy is jobbing the system and instead just bought him lunch? What, what if we didn't have to decide whether or not a, a, a gay man was born that way, but just had him over for dinner? Or if a single mom has, has, has been responsible enough with her food stamps and just offered to babysit her kid? Listen, I'm not saying that there are no boundaries. Certainly there are. But I worry that the pendulum has swung way too far and that we need to be willing to be taken advantage of a lot more than we are. Just play it out to the very end, will you? Imagine getting to heaven and standing before God and saying, you know what, God, here's my trove. I didn't get taken advantage of one time by those bums on the street. They were trying to get a buck out of me. I'm not sure that's how the winners decided. A Christ-like ministry will always be an uncomfortable ministry. And I think Jesus' point here is that there's a new method for grading righteousness. He was not just dismissing the old law in a cavalier fashion. He wasn't thumbing his nose at religious conventions just for the sake of it. He's presenting a contrast. He says there are, there are two different ways 
that people approach God, and the two are completely incompatible. One of them leads to life and the other leads to death. Here's the way that leads to death. It's when a group of people deem themselves holy, deem themselves self-righteous, and then they make up their own scale for a righteousness test, they grade it, they give themselves an A+, and they flunk everybody else. That's what the religious leaders were doing. And by the way, I sometimes still see Christians today doing this very thing, saying, I'm in, and the rest of my crew is in, and here are the rules that we've decided are most important, and if you don't abide by our rules, then you're out. You see, we sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, but we have in mind only our kind of wretches. (laughs) That, That grace might just be too amazing for us to imagine that the same grace that saved me is extended to also save others who, who, who we truly believe deserve God's punishment. Maybe that grace is just big enough to cover them too. Let me just say it this way. The whole test has been ripped up by God. That whole test that we made up and it's been tossed into the circular file. And the issue now becomes laser-like in focus. What are you gonna do with Jesus? Do you follow or reject Jesus? Will you wholeheartedly respond to the free grace being offered to you? Will you realize that there is nothing you can do to earn righteousness? And then invite him to be Lord of your life and radically change you from the inside out. New identity, new priorities, new way of thinking, new way of talking, new way of behaving. And these changes don't come from external behavior modification efforts, but by inviting Jesus in to be both Savior and Lord. He is grading righteousness now solely on what you do with Jesus and how you allow him to transform your life. His whole conclusion to this section in verse 17 says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. By the end of Mark, we find out everyone is sinners. Everyone, including the inner circle of disciples, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we all need a savior. So today we've seen that Jesus includes those you'd least expect. Jesus models friendship with the outcast. Here's the third aspect of this redefinition of who's in and who's out. It's that true disciples of Jesus prioritize relationship over rituals. This is the third conflict of five. I want you to look and we'll read it together in verse 18. It says, Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, I want you to remember that the the real issue here is Jesus' new kingdom versus legalistic righteousness, the new patch on the old cloths, the new wine in the old wineskins. Our new leader is showing us the ramifications of his new kingdom, and he's contrasting it with the old rituals. This time, the battlefield is fasting. See, Religion makes life-giving spiritual practices like fasting into checklists, into benchmarks to, to measure our spiritual performance, and ultimately to earn our favor with God. It's like a collection of spiritual good luck charms that, that are going to eventually help me earn my way into heaven. But Jesus draws us back to the true meaning of these practices like fasting, which are deeply relational. Jesus basically says the goal of fasting is to be in deeper relationship with God. And when God is standing right in front of you, you already have that relationship, so it would be silly to fast. 
When I'm gone, he says, then start fasting again because the point is a relationship with me. Now, let me just zoom out from this passage for a moment to a broader, the, the broader kind of counsel of scripture on this. And I just wanna share a few words about fasting. Notice Jesus doesn't denounce fasting here. In fact, he affirms it after he's gone. He says fasting is important, and fasting is among the spiritual practices historically that have been central to Christianity, along with prayer and study of the scriptures and solitude and things like that. But I'm afraid this practice of fasting has been largely lost in our modern times and in our culture of indulgence. The Old Testament only specified one day where fasting was mandatory upon all of Israel, the Day of Atonement, but by Jesus' time, fasting had become a traditional ritual observance that was customary for most religious people. The Pharisees fasted on on Monday and Thursday every week as an expression of their piety and and self-consecration. The disciples of John here, we find our fasting for repentance and probably for the arrival of the time of redemption. But some groups had taken the act of fasting and had turned it into something that it was never intended to be, an opportunity to show off just how spiritual they were. In fact, Matthew 6.16 says that some people would disfigure their faces so that everyone would know that they were fasting. In fact, this external act, when not accompanied by both obedience and and purity, God says in Isaiah, it's it's actually repulsive to him. He says, your fasting is disgusting to me because it's being done with the wrong motivations. And so what is fasting and what is the proper approach to it today? Well, fasting is, I would define it like this. It's denying your physical appetite in order to prioritize your relationship with God. Historically, it has involved abstaining from food or drink for a period of time, sometimes one meal, sometimes one day, sometimes an extended period of time. Today, people have added other things other than food to their fasting, uh, like denying our appetite for social media or or spending or purchasing things, our appetite for stuff. And, And what makes spiritual fasting different than modern trends, things like intermittent fasting, which is a big deal now, is that this kind of fasting is not primarily for the health benefits, although those are certainly real. It's primarily a prioritization of the spiritual over the physical. It's saying that when when those hunger pangs come, instead of filling myself with food, I'm going to allow those pangs to be a reminder to seek God and to fill my soul. And so this act of self-denial may not seem huge. After all, it's just a meal or it's just a trip to the mall. But it brings us face to face with the hunger at the core of our being. Fasting exposes how we try to keep empty hunger at bay and gain a sense of well-being by devouring other creature comforts. And through self-denial, we begin to recognize what controls us. Our, Our small denials of self then show us how little taste we actually have for focused time with God. Some Christians have made fasting a weekly practice. Others do it occasionally. Reasons for occasional fasting include things like personal spiritual renewal, reminding yourself of the centrality of Jesus in your life. People often fast during times of intense spiritual warfare. Or maybe they fast to seek God's will for an important decision that they have coming up. Sometimes there are seasons of corporate fasting among church members for for prayer and solidarity. I know our elders have regularly fasted when we face big decisions as a church. We've also fasted as a whole congregation at Grace from time to time. But it's very important to remember the goal of fasting is not to manipulate God, it's not to get God to do what you want him to do. Instead, it's to truly seek him and to truly seek his will and to come to a relational understanding of his view on whatever it is that you're facing. And so I want to encourage us as a church to return to a practice of fasting. If you're in a life group, 
Try fasting together. Pick a day, pick a focus, have everyone fast and pray, and then circle back up to see what God spoke to you collectively. So let's zoom back in to the passage. Jesus' point here is that fasting, along with all other spiritual disciplines, is about a relationship. I love his response when he says, can the, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Like he brings us back to this central concept of the new kingdom. Let me frame it like this, the primacy of joy. You see, the stress in both of these accounts is the joy of the new kingdom age. Jesus views his time with the disciples as a wedding celebration with music and revelry. The wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally lasted seven full days. Friends and guests had no responsibilities but to enjoy the festivities. There was good food and good wine and dancing that would spill out into the streets. Jesus would have made a terrible Baptist. I wonder which one of us went the wrong way. And anyway, Jesus says, denying yourself in the midst of such an occasion when a bridegroom is right there in front of you seems ridiculous. And so his invitation to, to Matthew, to Levi, resulted in a similar feast with all the outcasts at his house. You see, joy is the norm of walking with Jesus. And he says, my kingdom is more like a feast than a fast. Jesus would later say that he's come that our joy might be complete. The Bible puts joy in a non-optional category for the Christian. Joy is a command. Joylessness is a serious sin. And, and by the way, it may be the sin that is most readily tolerated in churches today, where people walk around looking somber and ticked off all the time. Listen, there's a being in the universe who wants you to live in constant sorrow, but it's not God. I've heard people say so flippantly, you know, I'll see all my friends in hell where we're going to be having all the fun. This is a gross misunderstanding of the nature of both God and Satan. God is for your joy. Satan is for your misery. And joy is at the heart of God's plan for human beings because joy is at the heart of God himself. God is the happiest being in the universe, which means even through intense heartache and pain, walking with Jesus is a joyful walk. Part of what makes this true is that Jesus has redefined who's in and who's out. He's opened the doors for the outcasts. Let me share a next step with you today. We're gonna to return to our discipleship questions. They, they accompany uh, the, the themes that go through Mark. And this text theme is the one of Jesus as son of God and son of man. He's revealing to us who he is. And the question is, the discipleship question, how does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? This picture of Jesus who opened the doors to the outcast. And I'll just suggest a follow-up question to wrestle the, the Holy Spirit with this week. <laughs> Who's an outcast in your life that Jesus is prompting you to invite to dinner. I wanna close with a story that I've told before, but I can't, I can't resist. It's from a pastor named Tony Campolo. He flew into Honolulu for a, a speaking engagement. He was unable to sleep at night, so at 3.30 a.m. he went to an all-night diner for some food. And while he sat there in his booth, he overheard a group of prostitutes talking. One of the, the ladies mentioned that the next day was her 39th birthday and some of the others snickered, well, what do you want to party? And she retreated into her usual defensive shell and she said under her breath, I never had one my whole life. Why would I expect one now? Campola went to the, the counter to pay his bill and while he was there, he conspired together with the owner of the diner to bake a cake for the prostitute named Agnes. 
In between obligations the next day, Campolo went out and he got some streamers and got some other decorations and they, they, they did the place up. The owner of the diner had spread the word out in the streets about the middle of the night party and by 3.15 a.m. it seemed like every hooker in Honolulu was there waiting. And at 3.30 on the dot, Agnes walked in, right on cue. And the whole place yelled, surprise! Agnes was absolutely flabbergasted. She was stunned. Her knees started to buckle under the emotion. She almost fell over when the birthday cake was, was there with all the candles. That's when she totally lost it, sobbing and crying. And Tony said, well, blow out the candles, Agnes. Cut the cake. And so she pulled herself together and she blew out the candles, but, but she just couldn't bring herself to cut the cake. In fact, she asked, well, would it be okay if I took this home as is without cutting into it? They said, well, of, co of course, it's your cake. So she got off her stool, she picked up the cake, she carried it high in front of her like it was the Holy Grail. Everyone watched in stunned silence as the door closed behind her. Nobody knew what to do, and so they looked at each other, they looked at, at Tony. Finally, Tony got up on a chair like a good pastor, and he said, well, what do you say we pray together? <laughs> and so there in that little greasy spoon with half the prostitutes in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, not a dry eye in the place, Tony Campolo prayed for Agnes for her life, for her health, for her salvation. When he finished, the owner of the diner leaned over and he said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And he says it this way. He says, in one of those moments when just the right words came, Tony answered him, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. I don't know about you, but I want to be a church like that too. Love you guys.